Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland. I'm a prof at York University. This is the series, The Historical Jesus in Context. And at the moment, we're continuing with episodes that deal with Israelite history and with explaining the place of Galilee, and therefore a Galilean like Jesus, within the broader view of Israelite history and the political developments that took place in the centuries leading up to Jesus' time and during Jesus' time. In the last episode, we surveyed way back to the 900s BCE up to the creation of the Second Temple, and we also surveyed a little bit about the Temple State System. In this episode, we continue on in the Hellenistic period and in the Roman period. Namely, we start to get into the time period of Jesus himself and of the rulers, the Herods in particular, who were in control of these districts that make up Israel in the first century. We also deal with the Romans, who are an important political power during Jesus' time. After we deal with this survey of the history of Israel as it pertains to Galilee and Jesus, I finish off this particular episode with a discussion of what society was like and especially what social economic conditions were like in the first century Mediterranean world and within Galilee specifically including issues like what health was like, what life expectancy was like, so that we begin to get the down-to-earth aspect of what everyday life might have been like in the world in which Jesus lived. Throughout this episode, and also even in the previous episode, I forgot to mention this, I've been influenced and informed by three main scholars. Richard Horsley has a good number of books that deal with Galilee. In particular, his recent books are called Galilee, History, Politics, and People, and the other one's called Archaeology, History, and Society in Galilee. Sean Frayn's work has also informed me in my studies. In 1980, he wrote a book, Galilee, from Alexander the Great to Hadrian, but he has continued to explore various aspects of Galilean society and how Galilee relates to Judea in subsequent publications. And Martin Goodman, as well, has written quite a bit on Galilee and how Galilee fits within the overall framework of Israel in the first century. These scholars' works have informed me as I've been doing my discussions here. The students that were in the course that this episode relates to were reading Bart Ehrman's Introduction to the New Testament, which gives some background on Galilee. They were also reading for one of their book reviews a book by Richard Horsley that I would highly recommend, even though I don't agree with every aspect of it. It's called Bandits, Prophets, and Messiahs. Subsequent episodes you'll see are highly focused on that particular book and using that as an illustration of some of what's going on in the world of Jesus. Finally, the students also read the HarperCollins Visual Guide to the New Testament that's written by Jonathan L. Reed. This is an excellent introduction to archaeology as it pertains to the world of Jesus and the other early Christians. And so all of these works are sometimes referred to and inform the discussion that we have here. The present episode is focused mainly on political, social, and economic aspects of what life was like in Galilee and Judea and Israel. The next episode finally delves more fully into the issue of culture. What was cultural life and what was religious life like in Galilee and in Judea? And what relationship is there between Judea and Galilee with respect to the temple and other cultural aspects? 
I hope you enjoy this episode. You then have the Hellenistic kings that we learned about. Alexander the Great runs through a Mediterranean world in the 300, late 300s BCE, and then the Hellenistic kings run the territories he took over. So in the wake of Alexander the Great, Judea, Galilee, Samaria, all under Hellenistic kings. In fact, the Hellenistic kings battle it out with one another, and this is one of the contested areas. Where the Egyptian Hellenistic king, the Ptolemaic kingdom, sometimes takes over Judea. And the, the Asia Minor, Syria, Hellenistic king, the Seleucids, sometimes retake, and there's battles going on precisely over this region. So it's a contested region for a couple hundred years here, Israel and portions of Israel, during the Hellenistic kingdoms. But it's also during this period that we come across the Maccabean revolt that you need to really remember. So that in the 160s BCE, you still have a Hellenistic king ruling this territory. In this case, at this time period, it's the Seleucid king, the one that runs Asia Minor and Syria. That Seleucid king that we have come across in our reading several times and that I've mentioned uh, several times already is Antichus Epiphanes. We can't go into the details of the Maccabean revolt, but what essentially happens is you have some difficulties going on between this Hellenistic king, Antiochus Epiphanes, and the people running the temple in Jerusalem, and some of the other Judean families that have influence in Judea are having ongoing problems with Antiochus Epiphanes and ongoing problems with one another. There are debates among the Judean upper classes in the 160s BCE and before about what degree of Hellenization is acceptable when we talked about Hellenistic culture and how it came to influence Israel and influence Judean culture. There's no doubt about it. We've already got that established. Hellenism influenced Judean culture. The question is to what degree did it influence it and which Judeans did it influence more than other Judeans? And so there are debates among Judeans in this period about what degree of Hellenistic culture is acceptable. Can we set up Jerusalem as a Hellenistic polis, as a Greek city-state? Some people say yes, some people say no. But in conjunction with these inner problems within the Judean upper classes, there are political problems with the Hellenistic king that's in charge at the time, including that issue of him taking actions against Judean laws to some degree, and especially that incident where the soldiers of Antiochus Epiphanes set up that altar in the temple, where they said, we're Syrians, we're used to going to different temples, wherever we're settled as Syrian soldiers, all we do is say, okay, this God is worshipped here. He seems a lot like our God, Baal Shemim. Let's set up all our altar and we'll worship here. They won't mind us doing that. Well, they didn't mind. And the, and the Maccabean revolt is explained within 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, and 4th Maccabees and within Josephus' history as a reaction against Hellenistic culture and Hellenism. In this case, it's really a reaction against the idea of identifying the God of the Israelites with a Syrian God. It would be normal practice just about everywhere else in the Mediterranean world, but here it's a problem. All of that we can't go into the details of right now, but what we need to know is who reacts the most. It's a family called the Maccabees. 
the Maccabees react strongly against what's happening and successfully pull their family together and pull anyone who will uh, join them together and revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes. He's at the time having problems in all kinds of ways, running his whole territory, his Hellenistic kingdoms, such that they succeed. Uh, and ultimately the Maccabees overtake Jerusalem, cleanse the temple, that's known as the Feast of Lights, is a celebration of the Maccabees in the 160s, retaking Jerusalem and cleansing of, it, uh, of that altar that had been set up by those Syrian soldiers, and making it pure again so that God could be worshipped properly. They start to take more and more territory, the Maccabees, also known as the Hasmoneans. Because ultimately, they overtake Jerusalem and overtake and extend their territory and extend their territory over decades and decades to the point where the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees, are ruling not only Jerusalem but also Judea and then beginning to rule districts around Judea. By 104 BCE, this is where Josephus places it in his timeline, that the power of the Maccabean family, the Hasmonean dynasty, that followed the Maccabees, actually extends right up to Galilee. So in 104 BCE, for the first time in hundreds and hundreds of years, you have Galilee once again under the rulership of the temple centered in Jerusalem. Something I should have mentioned to you is this, that the Maccabees, the family, the Hasmoneans, first of all take on political rule, and they continue to take on political rule, but gradually they start to blend the high priesthood with political rule, so that by the time you get to Galilee being overtaken, you have the Hasmoneans as priest kings. I'm the king of Judea and all these territories we've overtaken, but I'm also the high priest of the temple. The temple system bound up with the politics very thoroughly. And now, in 104 BCE and following, you have Galilee back under the jurisdiction, back under the influence. The question is how much influence? the influence of the Jerusalem temple under the Hasmonean kings. Now, those hundreds of years of separate developments presumably involve separate developments in culture. What Josephus claims about the Hasmoneans when they overtake an area, whether it be to the south, places like Idumea, or, or places like that, or in this case, Galilee, what Josephus says about it is that the Hasmoneans re-advocate and promulgate and uh, sort of somewhat try and enforce Judean law. In other words, the Torah. Once again, religion and politics are bound up together. The Torah, the law, the five books of Moses are the political law of the Judean state. And so Josephus talks as though when the Hasmoneans retake an area or take over an area, that they try and get the populations to at least adopt Judean customs and Judean law. Again, the degree to which this happens is hard to know, but that would at least suggest to us that Galilee, first of all, would have some affinities with Judea to begin with, but some differences. But those differences might be lessened if there really is, as Josephus claims, an attempt to use the Judean Torah as it has been formulated around the temple in Jerusalem to try and rule over these new territories, including Galilee. So this is about 100 years before Jesus shows up. So there's 100 years of Galilee being back under rulership of the temple system in, in Jerusalem. Rulership of the temple has some control politically, even though it may be under the Romans soon enough. 
that brings us to the Romans. Let's go on to that. We're scanning through history still here, with the point being that we begin to understand in broad terms what sort of place Galilee is and how it relates to regions around it, including the temple system in Jerusalem. Because this has implications for all kinds of cultural questions we have to address soon enough, including cultural questions about the Jesus, the Jewish peasant. The degree to which Galilee is Judean or not Judean impacts the degree which Jesus, as a peasant living there, is Judean or not Judean. Let's talk about the wake of the Roman conquest. In the 60s BCE, Pompey comes in, tries to uh, establish some Roman control of this area. Up to this point, the Maccabeans have been in charge, but gradually the Maccabean kings, and queen in one case, start to lose power in the first century BCE. And this is when the Romans start to gain ascendancy. What the Romans do once they've overtaken this area, as we already know from our earlier discussion, is they don't try and get rid of everyone. They don't have a policy like the Assyrians or the Babylonians have. The Romans do not have the policy of taking away the upper classes. The Romans have the policy of make friends with the upper classes, kill off the ones that aren't your friends, and set them up and just let them rule the place. They know what it's like in Judea. Why not let them rule it? The lower classes are more familiar with the aristocracy that's local. So why not just leave them in power and actually facilitate the current conditions? So that's what the Romans do here. And what they do is they set up client rulers, as we call it. They use the word Judea now sometimes, the Romans, to describe not only Judea itself, but also Samaria and Galilee. So the terminology is sometimes confusing. But Judea is sometimes the whole area. That the Romans may speak of Judea, they mean this whole Israel area. So the Romans establish Judea as a client kingdom and pick someone they think can run it well. And what they do is they pick the son of a close confidant of a high priest. Antipater was a, a close confidant of one of the high priests. And Antipater's son is Herod the Great. So Herod the Great happens to be, and this is a problem for Herod sometimes, happens to be part Idumean and part Judean. Nonetheless, he's a local guy to some degree. He's familiar with the way things work, and this is who the uh, Romans pick to run this whole area, including Galilee. We don't have time to deal with Herod a whole lot, but I mean, there's a whole lot he did in order to make his way to that position. And the way that Josephus describes it anyways, is that Herod, before he was made client king, was quite successful getting the bandits out of controlling different areas and getting rid of bandits and brigands. Depending on which source you read for Josephus, sometimes Herod is portrayed as a good ruler, sometimes as a morally bankrupt guy. So if you read the Jewish War, Herod the Great is portrayed by Josephus more as a, a successful ruler. And if you read the Antiquities of the Jews, which has a different purpose, that's another writing of Josephus, he starts to portray more of Herod's negative side morally. Anyways, he documents quite a lot about Herod's ascendancy and Herod the Great's reign. So that's our main source for Herod the Great, is Josephus once again. Herod the Great, I don't think he's great, he reigns from 37 to 4 BCE. A good chunk of time, a few decades there. What he does is engages in a huge building program in a way that no one had done before him. And he does so as a client ruler of the Romans. And so he builds up, for example, Caesarea Maritima is 
a city on the coast, coast just below, below Tyre and Sidon, sort of below Galilee, on the coast. He builds that as an immaculate city. He does this in all parts of his region, where he'll build massive palaces for him. He'll build huge temples for Augustus, say, if it's a non-Judean area of his territory, he'll build a temple in honor of Augustus, the emperor. If it's other regions, he'll build a temple in honor of the God of the Israelites. And that's what he does. He massively rebuilds the temple in Jerusalem so that it's extended far bigger than it ever was, far more elaborate than it ever was, and now using Roman techniques for building and Roman architectural techniques. And so the temple gets extended in this period, and that's the temple that Jesus walks into and overturns the tables in. So there's what is perceived by upper-class people of the time as very positive things that Herod does. Horsley gives you plenty of the other side of the coin. The question is how to measure these things. Horsley likes to emphasize the negative sides to the rule of Herod, to the point where exploitation was going on to the peasantry, taxation was higher than ever to build all these buildings, cities engaging in building, and then as soon as Herod dies, boom, you got terrible revolts, etc., because of what was going on during his reign. So it's difficult to assess Herod's reign historically. What seems likely is that Jesus was born towards the end of Herod's reign. The only basis in which we have to say this is the birth narratives in both Matthew and in Luke. Matthew makes a big deal of it. Matthew's story is the one where Jesus is born and Herod the Great knows about rumors about a king being born and then sends out uh, people to kill all the children in that, right? So that's Matthew's story that's more like an interpretation of Jesus in light of the story of Moses, which we'll learn about later on when we get on to the uh, Gospels as stories. Very loose idea then of Jesus being born late in the reign of Herod the Great. So Herod has three sons who inherit the territory that he ruled. They're all called Herod, just to confuse you. And so when you're reading through the Gospels, they won't tell you which Herod they're talking about. So the Herod that's involved in the death of John the Baptist that you happened to come across recently is Herod Antipas, his son who rules over Galilee and Perea. You saw those on the map. They're not side by sides. Philip, Herod Philip, rules Golanitis and other regions in this territory. And then Archelaus rules Judea and Samaria. The details of that don't matter so much as the point that Antipas is the guy ruling over the territory where Jesus is. Herod Antipas does quite a bit with his territory. Let's focus on him because we were running out of time in some ways. 4 BCE, most likely, Antipas puts, puts some money into rebuilding Sepphoris as his capital city. Then in 19 or 18 CE, he builds a new city from scratch. Well, there's a village there, but he builds Tiberias on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, which you can see in that same map from the Wikipedia page on Antipas. Tiberias, Sepphoris, the two main cities. Eventually, Tiberias becomes more like a capital for Antipas's rule over this region as well. He's a client ruler for the Romans, just like Herod was his father. They're all ruling on behalf of the Romans, and yet they're somewhat locals. So these guys, Antipas and Philip, keep ruling into the 30s CE, so it overlaps entirely with Jesus' time. However, down in Judea and Samaria, there are problems with Archelaus's rulership over that territory. In 6 CE, the southern territory, Judea and Samaria, begin to be ruled by Roman governors instead of a client king. 
this becomes a problem. First of all, people in these territories already know they're under foreign domination. They don't like foreign domination. They like to rule themselves and feel like they're not controlled by a pagan to them empire. When there's client kings that were part Judean, at least there was a buffer. But once you have the Roman governors ruling directly, it's a bit more obvious to people that the Romans are controlling this area. And this is part of what leads up to what is known as the Jewish War from 66 to 70. Let's talk about social, economic, and cultural life now. Now that we've got a quick scan through the period and we know how Galilee fits into this whole thing. Let's talk about specifically Galilee, but some of this will apply to Judea as well. But I'm going to concentrate on Galilee. First of all, on social and economic life. Let's talk about what it was like socially and economically in first century Israel and Judea and Galilee, etc. The first thing to emphasize is this. It's an agrarian economy. The economy of the ancient world generally, of the whole Roman Empire, is an agrarian economy. It is not a market economy. In other words, the economy is based on the peasants in the countryside planting things. And some of the produce from that countryside making its way to cities, but to local cities, and then ultimately to the political centers in certain regions. So it's an agrarian economy, and the vast majority of the population, therefore, are working out in the countryside as farmers. More than 90%, you could almost say. Grain, vegetables, oil, these are very important products that are grown. The nature of the economy, though, is such that it's a subsistence economy. You plant as a farmer food so that you can survive. Some of the produce you create gets sifted off by the powers that be and then makes its way into that system, including the temple system we referred to. For Judea, the temple system is a central political institution, and it makes that skimming off the peasants, makes its way to the temple, and also makes its way to the Romans in a variety of ways. It's a primitive economy, is a way of putting it. There's people that study economies in political science and in anthropology, Polanyi is one of them, who would call a place like first century Judea and in Galilee a redistributive economy. Redistribution is what they call it. They don't mean everyone gets fairly redistributed. That's not what they're talking about. Horsley gives you a good idea of this in Bandits, Prophets, and Messiahs. What I would say about Horsley is he exaggerates, in my opinion, he emphasizes it to the nth degree. But he's got a point, and so you can learn a lot from him regarding these economic aspects of life here. So basically, the social stratification of first century Israel is rulers and ruled, with the vast majority of people being peasants working the land. Some people might have occupations in the towns and cities that may be something other than working the land and growing food. This redistribution, taking some of the produce of the land, or a good amount of the produce of the land, and redistributing it to the upper classes and to the political powers is what we would roughly call taxation. Scholars debate the degree of taxation, which relates back to this question of how accurate Horsley's characterization of economics in the first century really is. Horsley is at the high end of estimates among scholars. Horsley estimates the taxation, both taxation in the form of the temple's dues, the temple receiving things from peasants, and taxation in terms of the Romans through their rulers, both those put together in Horsley's view would be 40% or more of what the peasant actually produces. Lower estimates are made by people like E.P. Sanders. 
He was aware of Horsley's estimates and some other people like him. And E.P. Sanders has a very conservative estimate, you could say, on the other end of the spectrum. He would say that maybe the taxation and total takeaway from the peasant would approach about 20%. Either way, it's significant. Either way, this is a, you could say, a tax burden. Either way, you could say this is a problem for a peasant who's living at subsistence level. In other words, subsistence level, and this is, is living at the point where you're just making enough food to eat and survive, so that you can make more food to eat and survive, so you can make more food to eat and survive. But if your estimate is 40% or more on the taxation versus 20%, your picture of what subsistence farmers' conditions are like is different, isn't it? Quantifying ancient material that we have, quantifying doing ancient history and even doing medieval history is very difficult. One thing that archaeologists have found is that we do have evidence that can be interpreted as increases in large landholding in this period. So that the economic situation of the peasantry is affected by this. Namely, that the aristocracy, the upper classes, are starting to gain larger and larger tracts of land and having the peasants work their land. Rather than a freeholder, a peasant freeholder, in other words, a peasant actually having their own land and subsistence farming it, and then some of it being taken away. Instead, rich guys owning a whole huge area of land and having tenant farmers. A tenant farmer is someone who works the land owned by someone else and pays dues to the person who really owns the land. Then you have laborers that are just hired, and they may be hired by at one season but not another, and therefore might end up bandits, like the picture you read in uh, Horsley's book on chapter on bandits. The precarious situation of the peasantry is the point I'm making. Even if it's not extremely precarious like Horsley thinks, it's nonetheless precarious. Let's talk a little bit about life in the cities and then talk about cultural life. Remember that Sepphoris and Tiberias are the only two cities in all of Galilee. What do I mean by cities? Well, Sepphoris and Tiberias maybe had populations around 10,000 each. These are estimates that archaeologists make and scholars make based on what we know from archaeology about the size of the city, based on the land around the city that would supply the food to allow the aristocracy who settle in the city to eat, and then they make estimates on things. Towns like Nazareth are around maybe two or 300 at most. To give you a comparative perspective in the ancient world, Jerusalem's a lot bigger than 10,000, but Jerusalem's smaller than some other cities. Ephesus in Asia Minor in the first century, scholars estimate at perhaps around 50 to 100,000. That's considered a big city, huge in the ancient world. Life in an ancient city or village is quite different than life in a modern city or village. In the book by Reed, you've got an idea of what houses were like, very basic houses in most of the villages. In the cities of Sepphoris and Tiberias, they're upper-class guys who have the money to put into it, and they build typical sort of aristocracy houses. Basically, occupations we've already scanned just by talking about the economy, namely the vast majority of the people working the land as farmers, some people keeping animals, shepherds, cowherds. Fishing, we glimpse them. Fishermen, and if you're near a body of water that has fish, that's another option of an occupation, and you have the people that associate with Jesus are portrayed as uh, fishermen quite often. A few people engaging in handwork in the villages and especially in the cities. People who might be a carpenter. The story about Jesus being a carpenter fits within that sort of context there. Some of the excavations you can read about and read include the discovery of fishing tackle and things like that that give us sort of a, a momentary glimpse into real life there. 
Another thing that Reed points to that you need to remember and to note in your overall understanding of Jesus' world is something that's very different than our world, namely life expectancy. In the Caiaphas tomb that you read about in Reed's book, The Visual Guide to the New Testament, you read about Caiaphas' tomb. Skeletal remains that were found there. There was about 63 skeletons. That's an upper-class family, by the way, right? Caiaphas is a high priest. In an upper-class family who has access to more food and meat than you, could, than you would have if you're a peasant, 60% of the people were dead before puberty. Imagine if you growing up, 60% of your friends were dead before puberty. This is a different society, isn't it? Life is very precarious in antiquity, including in Galilee and Judea. On top of that, the general estimates that scholars have is that life expectancy would be the early 20s. So your average person lives into their early 20s. This is partly because of the subsistence sort of uh, conditions that we already noted, but also disease. You have no health care except for some guy walking around healing people. So this is a, a very different world than ours, health-wise, and that has implications for our understanding of Jesus' activity, especially when we get to the healing. It tells you something about why Jesus may be popular if the perception of his contemporaries is that he can heal you in, a, in conditions where just about half your friends are dead before you're at puberty. Healing might be something you're interested in. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharland.com. I like early Christianity. The opening music of this series in the podcast is Paradise Lost by Namgyal Lamo, a Tibetan artist. You can find her on the web and you can buy her CDs at Amazon.